0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Jonathan Cortez, the host of this channel and the producer of this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nancy Raquel Miraval about her book, Suspect Freedoms, The Racial and Sexual Politics of Cubanidad in New York, 1823 to 1975, published in 2017 by NYU Press. Dr. Miraval is an associate professor of American Studies and director of the U.S. Latina Latino Studies program at the University of Maryland College Park. She's, one, she's on the advisory board for the Center for Global Migration and an affiliate faculty with the Department of Women's Studies, Consortium on Race, Gender, and Ethnicity, and the Center for Latin American Studies. She has published widely in the fields of Afro- diasporic and Latinx studies, in addition to the fabulous book we'll be discussing today. She was also co-editor of Keywords and Latino, Latino Studies with Lawrence LaFontaine Stokes and Deborah Vargas, also published in 2017 by NYU Press. Um, which was featured on a previous New Books in Latino Studies interview, which I encourage you all to go and listen. I would also like to add that I had the great pleasure of having Dr. Mirabel as an advisor and mentor, and I took a class with um, her during my fellowship year at the University of Maryland College Park this past year. Nancy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: Of course. Um, So, Nancy, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by you telling us a bit about yourself, um, your personal and your academic background.
1: Sure, sure. So um, I always tell folks that I'm an accidental historian. So um, I grew up in Southeast L.A., Huntington Park, California. Uh, Cuban parents uh, who they migrated uh, before the revolution, moved to New York. They met in New York, actually, Um, migrated individually, met, married in New York. My brother was born uh, in New Jersey. And then they decided they didn't want to be in the cold weather and move to California. And that's where I was born. And I always tell folks that, you know, uh, Latinx immigrants, Spanish-speaking immigrants always ask, where's the barrio? And so the barrio was East LA. And that's where we moved. My parents moved. And that's where I was born. So the reason I tell that story is because a lot of how I grew up influenced the kind of research that I do. Um, I did my undergraduate work in history at UC Berkeley because I was told by an advisor that if I wanted to be a journalist, and at the time I wanted to be a, a journalist, a foreign correspondent, um, I don't know why because I didn't know anybody who was a journalist, I didn't know anybody who had gone off to college, so it was more like a, an imagining a dream and they said, well, you should study history. And that's how I started uh, learning so much in history and realized that um, I wanted to not only read history, but I wanted to write it. And I wanted to write it about the communities that I knew and the communities that had surrounded me. And um, there was just, I was taking all these courses, which were fascinating, but my history was not included. And... um And then uh, I I was lucky enough that uh, I got into the history department at the University of Michigan, where I got an opportunity to work with really incredible scholars. And my mentor at the University of Michigan at the time was uh, Professor Earl Lewis, who directed my um, dissertation. And I also worked closely with um, Robin Kelly and Elsa Barkley-Brown, George Sanchez, Um, and Silvia Pedraza and Luz Behar, who were all really wonderful scholars there at Michigan. So I came at a very exciting time um, to do this work, and I'm very grateful to all of them.
0: Yeah, that is an incredible cast of of people who have been supporting you. Um, Yeah, thank you for that, and thank you for telling us a little bit about your background and growing up in in Los Angeles and how your parents um, got to Los Angeles. Um, And so how did you come to focus on the subject matter of this book? I mean, because this book is... Incredibly expansive, as we talked about before the interview, right it covers about a hundred years of Cuban diasporic history and so how did you come to this to this subject? Uh, you mentioned that you weren 't seeing your history reflected um, and 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 so yeah, I mean essentially, how did you come to it
1: good, okay well, um <laughs> well, two things uh you know first, and I always like to be as honest as possible because hopefully if there 's uh, young, rising scholars interested in doing this work. Um, you know, I want you to know that it's okay to take your time. This book took me 20 years to write. <laughs> so, you know, oftentimes, um, we come to our subject matters in very, uh, roundabout, circuitous ways, um, the wandering ways of, of scholarship. Um, I always tell the story of when I was in graduate school and um, I remember my first year there and there was an older scholar, um, white, who basically asked me what kind of history I wanted to write. And I said, well, I want to write the history. And I wrote about this uh, recently. Um, I want to write the history of the Latinx community in in the United States. And um, his response was, there is no such thing. And I think he, what he meant by that was that he really, I think, believed deeply in this concept of assimilationist and that we were all from the United States and so forth. But I understood and and thought differently because I grew up in a community that was really almost 98% Latinx, Central Americans, Mexicanos, Cubans, a lot of Cubans, working class Cubans in LA, um, Puerto Ricans. And so I knew that there was a different history, and especially with my neighbors who were long-term uh, Chicano residents who you know had five, six generations of being in Los, in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, um, so that I knew that there was a history. I knew my parents had a history. And so on the one hand, I was told that we had no history. And then when I was working with scholars of color, I think the idea which was interesting, mostly in the academy of what the history of Cubans, at this time, we're looking at the 90s, 1990s. Their idea of what was the history of Cubans or experience of Cubans was fundamentally focused on the Cuban Revolution of 1959. So it was either the Cuban Revolution of 1959 or the small exile communities that came to New York and the larger ones in Florida as a result of Uh, the Cuban War for Independence, known as the Spanish-American War. And we're looking at about 1886 to 1895. And that was most of the work that was out there in terms of Cuban history. And so that periodization, I looked at this and said, this makes no sense. Like what happened after 1898? That was my question. Like what happened to these people? Did they just disappear? you know, where did they go? And so I remember writing, when I was writing my dissertation, the first chapter really was kind of exploring that question. Like, what if we were to change the periodizations? Um, what, What if we were to think before 1886, 1830s, 1840s, and then the period after 1898? What happened in 1910, 1920s, 1930s? And so that's kind of what pushed my work because I had those questions. And I guess, as I tell folks, this was the book that I wanted to read. I wish I had this book when I was doing my research as just very little was out there. And so that started me on my journey of trying to figure out. And I also noticed that when we don't focus on 1898 or 1959, Those two particular periodizations in history are actually very, very white and very privileged. And um, if you move that periodization, you actually get a more working class Afro-Cuban racialized migration as well. So that was also part of the reason why I wanted to do this work. And I also wanted to write about women as well.
0: Wow that's incredibly inspirational and fascinating. Um and I like the what you said about when you when you move when you move the marker right of these important historical moments you get a very different um view and so one of the really two of the views that I kept coming back to in your book um that I found incredibly important were the the Afro-Cuban experience and the experience of women in the movement. And so um, how did you come, like, was that a product of moving the marker or was that something you always wanted to intentionally focus on?
1: I think it's both. It's both. And so, you know, I wrote an article, it came out in 2003, um, it's called Ser de Aquí, where it challenged the Cuban exile model and said, you know, basically I argued 1959 should not is more of an outlier, It doesn't really kind of capture our history as Cubans in the US and blah 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 and, and I got a lot of ooh, I got a lot of pushback on that. Um and then realized wow this fifty nine model is pretty, pretty fixed. But then ten, twelve years pass and I to my um delight, you know, I think more of students and scholars began to say, Hey, what if we were to study for instance Cubans in the 1970s or Cubans in the 1990s or Cubans in the 1930s. Um, and And that was really the whole point of that, right, is to say, okay, let's look at this history. And what I've learned in doing this work, and it was a lot of painstaking work. If the book is, there's a lot of research that went into the book. And I think I might have I was just so fixated and obsessed with making my point that I think like footnotes are like, you know, five people said this, so <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I've been teased that there's a lot, a lot of footnotes, a lot of research, you know, a lot of uh work to prove this point. And I and it's just because I was coming across such new information, um, such um for you know, almost uh radical information that I wanted to make sure that it was very well documented, and so what you learn when you change this is so for instance, you know um there's three points that I would say overall kind of capture the book. um if you go before eighteen so you have the ten years' War, which was eighteen sixty eight to eighteen seventy eight in Cuba, and that war uh, was against the Spanish, and that prompts a lot of Cubans to leave the island. New York and to organize in New York. And of course, that makes sense because New York is the the center of publication, the center of organization. But also they couldn't stay in Cuba because they would be jailed, right? Um, Or they could be killed. So it made sense to leave. And that's when you get the first kind of inkling of many Afro-Cuban men and women who leave, uh, free people of color and, and so forth. But if you go before that, 1830s and 1840s, what you realize is that it's never part of the history. And I think my book might be one of the few that still that actually discusses this, is that um, you're looking at the impact that the Haitian Revolution and that Haiti had on the earlier migrations of Cubans who tended to be white and elite. And so early on, there's this discussion about whiteness, en blancamiento. And so when these... Afro-Cubans come out in the 1870s, for instance, they're met by a community that is actually uh, really struggling to deal with, do they end slavery? Do they really want to end U.S.? I mean, do they really want to end Spanish rule on the island? And so that is where this question of kind of an intellectual idea gets to be created. So I wanted to include Haiti and the Haitian Revolution And argued that that had a huge impact on how uh, Cubans, both white and Afro-Cuban, and in between, racially in between, begin to think about their future as an independent island. And most studies kind of ignored the role of Haiti all along. But Haiti is huge. It's in the newspapers. It's in the journals. It's in speeches. It's in conversations. There's one side that says We don't want to be like Haiti. There's other sides that said Haiti's not so bad. And the conversation, the dialogue is so actually encompassing that African-Americans and the black press get involved. And so you see like the Frederick Douglass papers talking about the question of Cuba within um, the context of Haiti. Um, and being very familiar with that discourse. So I brought in the black press, I brought in African-Americans. There's one chapter devoted to the Cuban Anti-Slavery Society of 1872 that African-American men organized in New York um, around these questions of Haiti, around these questions of freedom, of diaspora, of what it means to have pan-Africanism, how Cuba and Haiti on some level uh, really challenge African-Americans notion of what it means to be free and what is their responsibility once they have gotten their freedom from slavery um, for other nations or other countries that are still impacted by slavery or still have um, enslaved Africans in working notably would be uh, Cuba and Brazil. So, That really became an important history. And then I realized I have this intellectual history. And then um, I went ahead and through that context, began to write about Afro-Cuban activism in New York and another. So one is Haiti. Um, Another one that gets uh, that was pretty much understudied, except for uh, Gerald Boyo, who was a great historian who wrote about this, Um, is really about the labor and the role that labor organizing actually has in New York in the 19th century. Afro-Cubans who work in these cigar factories, New York had one of the most extensive cigar factories uh, before uh, Ybor City and Tampa. They're coming to New York to work in the cigar factories, and those cigar factories are actually owned by many of the Cuban nationalists, these people, separatists, who want to have independence from Spain. They tend to be white, wealthy, previous landholders. They own these cigar factories. And there's tension between the owners of the cigar factories with the cigar workers, both male and female. And so that causes a lot of dissension in the attempt, for instance, of Marti, who comes in 1880 to try to organize a nationalist movement. So labor organizing and activism and the role of labor unions is one of the biggest threats to the nationalist movement. And it's Afro-Cubans, Rafael Serra, Margarito Gutierrez, uh, Martín Moro Delgado, who writes on uh, this really incredible, important piece on workers, El Obrero. And so they're really saying, well, do we go to the nationalist movement that is still dealing with the same racism and elitism? Or do we work towards the freedom of Cuba through labor? And it's a fascinating discussion. So when Martí comes in, he realizes that if he's going to unify the Cuban exile movement, he has to do several things. One is he has to include the end of racism, -racism, anti-racism, anti-blackness within the platform. And he has to include labor. He has to say, yes, this is a movement that supports workers and supports labor. Um, and that didn't go down too easy, but, uh, he, he does begin to, and he himself has to be educated. It's really Rafael Serra, who's Afro-Cuban cigar worker, who's been there longer than Marti, who has organized with a lot of smaller clubs, uh, for the independence of Cuba, um, who founded La Liga Instrucción de Recreo, which was an Afro-Cuban, uh, organization in New York, uh, in 1890. And so these things are very important because the idea is that Martí comes in and organizes Afro-Cubans, right? He organizes them and makes them part of the movement. It's really the opposite. It's these Afro-Cuban men and women are already part of an exile, separatist movement. They're part of a labor organizing, labor activism. They've included, they're the ones, even Martí says, hey, it was Rafael Serra who founded La Liga. And they, La Liga, and he talks about Rafael Serra's work, he talks about an organization, La, La Colectiva, which is the collective of Afro-Cuban men who have known each other for close to 20 years before La Liga is founded, and that they meet in individual houses. And they're really thinking about, for them, the independence of Cuba is so important because they're thinking about what does our freedom look like once Cuba's independence? Uh, once Cuba's independent, you know, are we going to have rights are we going to be in positions of power? It's almost like many of the questions that African-Americans have as a result of reconstruction in the United States. You know, what now is our role um, in this state after slavery? And Marty comes into that conversation later. So it's a flip. Um, and I had to do a lot of research um, and have sources to connect that. So Haiti, labor, and then um Post-1898. And that was the question that once the United States intervenes in um, the Spanish-American War or the Cuban War for Independence, we know what happens. The United States intervenes. Um, We have the Treaty of Paris. Uh, Cuba is now in the hands of the United States. They passed the Platt Amendment, which basically gives the United States control of Cuba. They set up a military base um, in Guantanamo. And so, um, you know, what for many of the activists, the organizers, um, what has taken place in Cuba is um, mortifying. It's horrific. And also what, you know, many historians didn't realize or what folks don't realize is that, and I argue... There's a sort of diasporic thinking. Many of those revolutionaries who are in New York actually return to Cuba. And Cuba's first president, Tomás Estrada Palma, was actually the president of the Partido Revolucionario Cubano after Martí dies, was killed in 1895. Um, and he is a U.S. citizen who speaks perfect English. And he was part of the exile movement. He becomes Cuba's first president. So there, right there, is that link, right, between the diaspora and what takes place in Cuba. Rafael Serra returns, Martin Moruo Delgado returns to very um, difficult uh, circumstances. He's the author of the Morúa Amendment, which leads to the race war in Cuba of 1912. Um, So there's a way that this kind of thinking, this intellectualism, doesn't travel as well to Cuba uh, as it did in the U.S., so those are the, the three key points that the book tries to do um is Haiti, the role of labor, and then provide a post eighteen ninety-eight history of um the Cuban diasporic community in New York and the relationship to Cuba. Ooh, that was a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. That was a really good overview of the book. And there's a lot that I and that I'm thinking about. I mean, I I mean, one of the questions that I had was thinking about um was was about haiti right it was the fear of Cuba becoming quote unquote another haiti right which is the sort of Caribbean revolutionary blackness that threatened white supremacy in Cuba and there's a part in the book where you talk about um i think post eighteen ninety eight where there there's an importation of spanish um of workers into Cuba as a way to to quell the growing black population right and to grow in fact uh, the white population um and so yeah, if you can just talk more about that—the um, fear of Cuba becoming Haiti and and the ways that they worked to combat
1: that—absolutely. So you have, um, of course, the earlier period of the 19th century, and you have. Uh, uh, so a lot of the book is 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 a late. <laughs> Folks ask me, is it a labor history? Labor history is it? Intellectual history is it? A social history is it? Political history is it? an Immigration history and I say it's all of it <laughs> because to tell this history, it's all connected, right? I always find that for me, when something's a labor history, it's like, well, there has to be some people who are thinking about these issues, right? So that makes it intellectual history or so forth, immigration history. So with that said, um, in bringing in thinkers, Jose Antonio Sacco, who wrote about whiteness, um, oftentimes is seen kind of divorced from the diaspora, right? He writes around 1830s and he's exiled to Paris because he believes in ending slavery and the Spanish don't like him. Well, his writings are being read by that early exile community early on uh, in New York, which is this idea of we should end slavery, but we have to keep the island white. And this is how we do it. We do it through intermarriage. We do it through uh, importation of white migrants, all of these things. And so that this idea of whiteness, of a blancamiento is is always kind of running. There's this fear of you know, what Haiti did was that Haiti, in many ways, in the imagination of the Caribbean and most of Latin America, was this fear of black revolutionary power, right? That that there was a power, a strength to overrule whiteness. Um, and it challenged this notion of whiteness as being superior in many respects. And so that was where the fear came from. And it was always a constant Uh, Absolutely, from the 1830s to the 1860s and 1870s, where you find these very capable, smart, innovative, um, forceful Afro-Cuban intellectuals, labor organizers, writers, journalists, having to look to people like José Martí or Juan Fraga, Or, you know, white Cuban sympathizers in the movement to translate their ideas because they were not given the same space, for instance, as, um, as white Cubans. And then this happens again after 1898 where U.S. is in control of Cuba and they begin to impose a lot of, you know, racial restrictions and segregation. And it's white Cubans who seem to be okay with it like Tomás Estrada Palma, which causes a lot of tensions. And so that's why it's called Suspect Freedoms, because what you see is that despite as much that this idea of cubanidad, right, what it means to be Cuban, gets, I you know, I argue that it, it gets created and organized and thought about in the diaspora. You know, that's where these questions are actually being had. Um, once Cuba becomes free and independent and we are now Cubans in Cuba, what does that mean? So they're constantly going back and forth. And part of what that means is race, right? What does that mean? And, um, it's always a question where Afro Cubans are never fully part of the nation building project or, um, in the nationalist empowerment. Um, so we see that. In the early 19th century, during the Spanish-American War, Cuban War for Independence, we see it after post-1898, in the 1920s and 1930s, and so what the book argues is that there's a good number of Cubans that stay, but then Cuba in the 20s and 30s is under a repressive president, Machado, Gerardo Machado, who really cracks down on the... beginning organizing of the Communist Party, which gets organized in Cuba. The Cuban Communist Party gets organized in 1925. Labor organizations, labor unions, very familiar story. Afro-Cubans are involved in this. And because as a result of the crackdown, they begin to migrate to New York because New York is familiar. They already have people that they know in New York. And so we see that by 1920s and 1930s, no one's really written about this. There's a massive migration of Cubans that leave the island, good number, about a third, are Afro-Cubans, to New York around the nineteen thirties. And it's there that they begin to organize El Club Meya. El Clu Julio Antonio Meya, which gets organized in nineteen thirty-two. El Clu Julio Antonio Meya is named after Julio Antonio Meya, which is one of the founders of the Communist Party in Cuba. He's exiled by the President, Machado, and then is assassinated in Mexico City in nineteen twenty nine. So if you're going to name your club <laughs> after a communist leader and organizer in New York, uh, you're not mincing words, right? You're being very clear. Um, and the club is a lodge, it's a logia of the International Workers' Order, the IWO, which is also a communist-affiliated um, organization in the United States, in New York. So it was clearly you know, sympathetic to communism and um, socialism. But in addition to El Clumea, which is from 1932 to 1940, and just finding the dates, that took about a year or two years to find the exact dating of this club. And um, I I write about the first chapter how I even came about this club was in my interviews with Mel bavarado, who is, um, she passed uh, recently, was my mentor, my friend. I adored her. We were friends for 20 years. And, um, I met her as a grad student when I went to um, the Schomburg to do research. And I asked uh, one of the librarians at the time was Miriam uh, Jimenez-Roman, who's now my friend and who I adore as well, and Diana LaChantaner, who I adore. And I asked him, I said, do you have any sources on women during this period? And He said, no, but if you want to interview Mel Balvarado, here's her phone number and good luck. And I did in the 1990s, right? was with all of this old-fashioned, none of this digital stuff that you all have now, right? Carrying around a microphone and cassettes and just this big thing. And I made my way up to the South Bronx in, in the summer. I remember it was so hot. And because I had called her and said, would you, could I interview you? And she said, yeah, yeah, come on up. And so I, I made my way up to the South Bronx, interviewed her at the club, El Club Cubano Interamericano, where she was president twice. And we talked and we had a 20 year conversation and she was the one person who said, Hey, you know, in her interviews would change when she first met me, she didn't tell me too much. And then towards the end, she told me everything, but she was the one that said, there's this club. It was called Glumea. And, um, I didn't belong to it cause I was young and neither did my dad, but I knew all the people who worked there who, who belonged to it. And, um, So she kept talking about El Clumeya, El Glumeya, And I thought, if I could find this club that she's talking about, then things will make sense for me. And um, she migrated to New York in the 1930s, I think 1936. She came with her family. Her father had come earlier. And her father had come, Luis Alvarado, because he uh, was organizing against Machado and was threatened. So he was one of these people who came in that migration. Uh, And then she had an uncle, Manuel Delgado, who came out earlier in 1929, Afro-Cuban, who also came for many of the same reasons and was a member of this club. So as I tell the story, I was, you know, for years I was trying to find this club. And then finally I I found the picture, which was the cover of the book. And that was the club existed. But, you know, it said IWO, and I thought, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's something else going on here. And so when I I made a copy of the photo and I went back to Melba and I said, Melba, el club existe. Aquí la gente. You know, you were right. And she was so delighted. And I said, But you didn't tell me that they were a part of the IWO, which is a communist organization. And I, I always loved her response. Her response was like, I si, see, verdad, se me olvidó ese detalle, which is, I forgot to tell you that detail. I said, "Well, no. yeah, it's sumamente importante, you know. It's, like,
0: it's
1: not what someone wore, um, but yeah." So then that was when I started doing research with the IWO, and then I looked at the Cologne papers, and it, it, I, I was like, "Okay." Um, and this whole world just opened up of really radical Latin American Cuban communities in the twenties and the thirties and um, the people who were involved. And so that club, uh, they were anti-fascists, uh, anti racist feminists. It was amazing. Women organized. I have a photo of a women woman part of El Club that were incredible feminist organizers, labor activists. And they even went, many of the members went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Um, so they were pretty active. And El Club is key uh because many of the members who were in that club were then founders of el Lukuano interamericano uh which was founded in 1945 um and it was primarily an afro-cuban club so there's that connection that's why it had to the bloomayer was the connection of the CCI that Melba was a, the president of and involved for close to oh my god 40 50 years to um to the 19th century
0: and so, what was some of the reluctance for um, Melba, but also other other people in in um, Clúb Antonio Mea and Clúb Cubano Interamericano? The reluctance towards naming or calling themselves socialists or communists. Um, and you talk a little bit about it in the yeah. book, but um, could you talk a little more about it here?
1: Yes. So, El Clúb Mea, they disbanded in 1940, and by that time you, you're you know on the brink of World War Two. And the IWO begins to disband as a result of McCarthyism and the Red Scare. They finally disband um, in 1952. And so you also have the rise of the Taft-Hartley Act, which basically says if you're an immigrant and you're involved in labor activism or any kind of what the government decides is communist or socialist, you could be deported. So there was, a, you know, a, a real... um it, it was really dangerous. Um, so within, I would say, 10 to 15 years, this this is to kind of come out as someone who had any um, links or uh, work with socialism and communism um, could be very dangerous, uh, could kill you, as Melba would say. And so when the CCI, the CCI gets organized again because of racial segregation separation. And the reason that Melba liked it blue Julio Antonio Mea was that she would say it was one of the few racially integrated clubs, right? So that was a picture too, in that being a club that was anti-racist, it accepted everybody. And, um, you know, many Afro-Cubans were seen as intellectual equals. And so... um That was, for Melba, one of these moments where she would say it was a time when there was no racism. And those are her words, right? But those same members, when the club gets disbanded, and then you have um, World War II, try to organize another Cuban club, right? They try to organize another club. The importance of these clubs is not only just for the social. they are also mutual aid societies where people paid in and got insurance benefits, for you know, medical insurance, because that's how people were able to pay for medical costs or if they lost their jobs, was through these clubs. And so that was really key and important. And so, um, so for instance, El Clumea was also a mutual aid society because it was part of the IWO. And so members benefited from getting um, health care and welfare if they needed it. At times, it supported the community and they wanted to do something similar much later. Um, but you know they, they did this event to celebrate Antonio Marcel, who was an Afro-Cuban general of the Ten Years' War and an incredibly beloved figure for Afro-Cubans. And they wanted to honor him because he was always honoring Martí. And they said, hey, wait, let's honor Marcel as well. They do this incredible event um, and they hold it in, in New York City, They invite the white members of the Cuban clubs and none of them show up. None of them come. And that's when the early club members like O Pedroso said, you know what? Um, We need to create a club for ourselves. They weren't being invited to be members of the white Cuban clubs. They weren't being invited to any kind of meeting, or organization, or events having to do with Cubans. They were basically being excluded. And so they decided to create this club. Uh, but key in creating this club was that the, one of the first bylaws was that it could not be a political club. It was apolitical. So they couldn't talk about politics, and they couldn't talk about religion in the club. And a lot of it had to do with protecting... um members from racism. And so much of the racism was because the past members, many who founded the CCI, had belonged to Maya and had been socialist. So they wanted to kind of hide that and didn't want to give word to that. In fact, if you look at any of the CCI records, which I looked at a lot of them, and um, now they are at the Schomburg, Uh, They were created by, uh, curated by Stephen Fullwood and Diana La Chantanera, and they did a a brilliant job. I recommend everyone to go see them. You don't get any indication at all from those records that they have any connection to El Culmeya. El Culmeya, as I write in the book, is archival disappeared. They don't exist. However, as I look through the members from the Meya to the CCI, you see many of the same names. They're there. And then you begin as you do more research, and Melba was very helpful in saying, yes, yes, there was this connection. And then I was able to make those connections. So they didn't want to talk about politics because they didn't want to be deported. <laughs> they didn't want to uh, go to jail. Um, and they didn't want to talk about religion because many of the members, and again, this isn't necessarily in the book because I couldn't research it and I didn't, and Melba had asked me not to necessarily include it. But many of the members were um, um, practitioners of Santeria. And so there was this kind of, uh, you know, anti-Afro-Cuban, this idea that this religion was somehow savage, all of these things. And so they were trying to be respectable. Respectable. And so I thought it was interesting that that part of the club membership had to, be, again, be outlawed and be silenced but they were very very keen on always doing a misa for uh, caridad del cobre which is a patron saint of cuba at the catholic church so that was key that was a, an important event that they did every year was la misa at the catholic church um and then that got racially segregated and separated so little by little they saw themselves being more and more um excluded and so they uh, got their club together which was very um and they it was inter-americano, which means that they would be open to Jamaicans, African-Americans, very Afro-diasporic. And they had all kinds of um, members from the Caribbean involved. And then they tried to do a statue to honor Maceo. And then I write in the book how just something is Maceo. And then they agreed, OK, let's do Maceo Martí. They're trying to create this idea of cuanidad, of interracial cuanidad and they get pushback from white like Cubans in the 40s and 50s to the point where the statue that does exist is the statue of Just Martí uh, in Central Park, and it's that big statue of Martí.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write uh, in, in the last chapter when you talk about the the history, um, or the short history and long memory of these statues, right? You say... Um, it theorizes the unraveling, the slippery, the un- the forgettable, to, um, the forgotten to get at why Afro-Cuban diasporic visibility and honor were so unthinkable and in turn why it is so necessary for the CCI to honor Maceo despite the criticisms leveled against them um, because F, um, race continued to be a fault line of um Cuban um, a nation imagina- imaginaries throughout like the the entire period you're talking about, right? Like race continues to be um, a way in which Afro-Cubans are pushed to the side or un- are um, invisible, and so yeah, that's incredibly important. And also um, the 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 history of women in these movements. Um, can you talk more about that? Because you pull out different names like Melba, or um, you talk about in chapter three, I believe. Um, Casanova de Villa Verde, um and and and, and then the later on in Mea, the Club the the Club de Damas like how were women playing into this long history of um Cuban exiles um and their movement?
1: I think women, you know, I'd like to do more research. Um I you know, women were at 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 the center. I mean, they were doing so much activism and especially in the twentieth century. Because many of those who begin to move, especially in the 1940s, and and Melba talks about this um, as a result of uh, a certain visa, tourist visa, where women would come with a tourist visa and stay and then work in the garment industry. So in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, the garment industry in New York really begins to, um, you know, become really, really um, lucrative and they need workers. And so Puerto Rican and Cuban women come to work in those factories um, and they're seamstresses um, most of the time in the garment industry. And so they stay and a club like um, the CCI or perhaps even a a Gumea becomes a place where they can come and organize and be together. And so Josefina Cepeda, who was the president of El Comité de Damas in El Club was an incredible person. I mean, she was writing about feminism. She was saying, look, this isn't just an auxiliary club that where women aren't. Because oftentimes there would be the male clubs and then they would do an auxiliary club just for women. So it was very gendered, right? It was very um, segregated on the basis of gender. And so she was saying, look, this isn't just any auxiliary club. We can go to those Maya members, Maya meetings anytime we want to. And they could. It was one that included everybody. But we want to have our separate space because we want to talk about feminism and we want to talk about work and we want to talk about, you know, what do you do when you have a bad marriage? What does it mean to raise your kids? All of these things that they wanted to talk about that necessarily did not want to be hindered by men. As she would say, you know, we just don't want men to interrupt and hinder us. And I thought that was really incredible. Um, and I think El Cumea also had um, El Comité de Damas, which Melba first started. That's how she first started within the club. And then she says, wait a second, we're doing everything. We're running the events. We're making, we're raising funds. We're making sure the club is, um, you know, sustained. No, we should be in part of the leadership. And that's when she runs for president and she's becomes the second woman to be president of the club. And she turns it around, right? And she's, and she begins to bring in women. So you see the photos, and they were mostly her photos and they were the first time that these photos were ever put in a book, that they were published. Um, You see women, a lot of women in the leadership of the CCI. And yeah, so because there were so many women coming, um, they end up organizing around these clubs. And again, you know, I always get asked, well, why were they there in the clubs? You know, at the heart of the club, yes, it was to have community, people who you knew. Networks, if you needed a job. So, for instance, uh, the CCI taught people how to sew. They would have sewing classes. So, if you came and you needed a job, but you didn't know how to sew, you would go to the CCI, especially if you're Afro Cuban, and you would get free sewing classes. They taught um, immigrants who were coming how to speak English. They would have English classes free of charge. Just come on in and they would teach you how to speak English. Um, They would help you find housing. Um, They would know each people and where you could get housing. What who would uh, rent to Afro-Cubans, what places to avoid. Um, and they also provided, like I said before, insurance um, in case you got sick or you needed, um, you, you were in between jobs and needed some monies. So that these clubs, uh, which we don't have now to this level, were really almost social safety nets for many migrants coming. And if you look at who were teaching these courses and who were getting people these jobs, they were primarily women.
0: Wow, and so again, that that feeds into this idea that it's 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 a, it's a labor history, it's a social history, like it's all of these different things yeah. wrapped into one, and and the way that you move between all of them is is really smooth and really detailed. Um, and I just want to thank, thank, thank you. you so much for for um for the book. <laughs>
1: thank you, thank um, you.
0: Well, we've thank seemed you. to have taken up um a good amount of your time, but I have one more question for you. Uh, as we wrap up and which is sort of a traditional question on, on the new books network. Um, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Oh yeah. I'm a little afraid of that question. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like, you know, when graduate students, when professors ask, Hey, are you done with your dissertation? How's the dissertation coming along? <laughs> and they're just like, ah, don't ask me that question. Um, it, I, You know, so Oh gosh, the book took so long to write, and then I did keywords with my two colleagues, and so I just needed to rest. So 2018 was my year of rest, um, and then 2019. There's two projects that I'm thinking about. One is um, as I was writing this book, I, I really became fascinated with um, archives and space. So you took my course on gentrification um, and the politics of displacement. So um, a lot, or you audited it. A lot of those courses uh has to deal with space, and so kind of the i'm I'm fascinated by archives, space, and discourse and how we speak about these things um and I'm also want to theorize more the questions of historical forgettings and you know where how we where we enter and how we enter and um I think as someone who has focused on history of populations of color, I always tell folks that suspect freedoms when you read it keep in mind that I was deeply influenced uh, by Black feminist theory and critique. And that was the only way that I could write that book. There was no other way. And so I think about that, like, okay, you know, how how do we write these histories? What are the theories that we use? Um, why are we so silenced, right? So I'm on the board for Teaching for Change, and one of the things that they do here in D.C., is really talk about social justice within the classroom and um, just how little we know about such important histories. So that's that's kind of what's taking up my time um, looking and, and beginning to do research on, on these histories that for some reason this nation, the United States, prefers to forget.
0: Wow, that sounds incredibly fascinating. And it even takes me back to a lot of the work that you did in, dis- in Suspect Freedoms, because a lot of the the, the chapters end with the sort of um, um, a thoughts on archive thoughts on why are people missing? Why are people, why are dates and why are um, um, events missing from this history? And um, that seems like a, a, like a great second book to follow this one. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so. yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it sounds like a really exciting project, uh, Nancy, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Well, thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me and for doing this. And for those who are listening, Jonathan has incredible research, and the dissertation is brilliant. And talking with you and having you at Maryland was just so incredible. And um, hope to see you more, see you more often, and talk with you.
0: I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, all right. Well. Well. Yeah. I will. I will see you soon.
1: <laughs> I hope to see you soon. And thank you again for inviting me. and, and Enjoy your summer.
0: I will, I will. All right, thank you. Goodbye. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.